Chapter 4 Affinities between reproduction and death. Death, corruption, and the renewal of life. It is clear from the start that taboos appeared in response to the necessity of banishing violence from the course of everyday life. I could not give a definition of violence straight away, nor do I think it is necessary to do so. The unity of meaning of these taboos should finally be clear from studies of their various aspects. We come up against one difficulty from the start. The taboos I regard as fundamental affect two radically different fields. Death and reproduction are as diametrically opposed as negation and affirmation. Death is really the opposite process to the process ending in birth, yet these opposite processes can be reconciled. The death of the one being is correlated with the birth of the other, heralding it and making it possible. Life is always the product of the decomposition of life. Life first pays its tribute to death, which disappears, then to corruption following on death and bringing back into the cycle of change the matter necessary for the ceaseless renewal of new beings into the world. Yet life is nonetheless a negation of death, it condemns it and shuts it out. This reaction is strongest in man, and horror at death is linked not only with the annihilation of the individual, but also with the decay that sends the dead flesh back into the general ferment of life. Indeed, the deep respect for the solemn image of death found in idealistic civilization alone comes out in radical opposition. Spontaneous physical revulsion keeps alive in some indirect fashion at least the consciousness that the terrifying face of death, its stinking putrefaction, are to be identified with the sickening primary condition of life. For primitive people, the moment of greatest anguish is the phase of decomposition. When the bones are bare and white, they are not intolerable as the putrefying flesh is, food for worms. In some obscure way, the survivors perceive in the horror aroused by corruption a rancor and a hatred projected toward them by the dead man, which it is the function of the rites of mourning to appease. But afterwards they feel that the whitening bones bear witness to that appeasement. The bones are objects of reverence to them, and draw the first veil of decency and solemnity over death, and make it bearable. It is painful still, but free of the virulent activity of corruption. These white bones do not leave the survivors a prey to the slimy menace of disgust. They put an end to the close connections between decomposition, the source of an abundant surge of life, and death. But in an age more in touch with the earliest human reactions than ours, this connection appeared so necessary that even Aristotle said that certain creatures, brought into being spontaneously as he thought in earth or water, were born of corruption. The generative power of corruption is a naive belief responding to the mingled horror and fascination aroused in us by decay. This belief is behind a belief we once held about nature as something wicked and shameful. Decay summed up the world we spring from and return to, and horror and shame were attached both to our birth and to our death. That nauseous, rank, and heaving matter, frightful to look upon, 
a ferment of life, teeming with worms, grubs and eggs, is at the bottom of the decisive reactions we call nausea, disgust or repugnance. Beyond the annihilation to come, which will fall with all its weight on the being I now am, which still waits to be called into existence, which can even be said to be about to exist rather than to exist, as if I did not exist here and now, but in the future in store for me, though that is not what I am now. Death will proclaim my return to seething life. Hence I can anticipate and live in expectation of that multiple putrescence that anticipates its sickening triumph in my person. Nausea and its general field. When somebody dies, we the survivors, expecting the life of that man now motionless besides us to go on, find that our expectation has suddenly come to nothing at all. A dead body cannot be called nothing at all, but that object, that corpse, is stamped straight off with the sign, nothing at all. For us survivors, the corpse and its threat of imminent decay is no answer to any expectation, like the one we nourished while that now prostrate man was still alive. It is the answer to a fear. This object then is less than nothing, and worse than nothing. It is entirely in keeping that fear, the basis of disgust, is not stimulated by a real danger. The threat in question cannot be justified objectively. There is no reason to look at a man's corpse otherwise than at an animal's. At game that has been killed, for instance. The terrified recoiling at the sight of advanced decay is not itself inevitable. Along with the sort of reaction, we have a whole range of artificial behaviour. The horror we feel at the thought of a corpse is akin to the feeling we have at human excreta. What makes this association more compelling is our similar disgust at aspects of sensuality we call obscene. The sexual channels are also the body's sewers. We think of them as shameful and connect the anal orifice with them. St. Augustine was at pains to insist on the obscenity of the organs and function of reproduction. Inter facies et urinum nascimur, he said. We are born between feces and urine. Our faecal products are not subject to a taboo formulated by meticulous social regulations, like those relating to dead bodies or to menstruation. But generally speaking, and though the relationship defies clear definition, there do exist unmistakable links between excreta, decay, and sexuality. It may look as though physical circumstances imposed from without are chiefly operative in marking out this area of sensibility, but it also has its subjective aspect. The feeling of nausea varies with the individual and its material source is now one thing and now another. After the living man, the dead body is nothing at all. Similarly, nothing tangible or objective brings on our feeling of nausea. What we experience is a kind of void, a sinking sensation. We cannot easily discuss these things which in themselves are nothing at all. Yet they do make their presence felt and they often force themselves on the senses in a way that inert objects perceived objectively do not. How could anyone assert that that stinking mass is nothing at all? But our protest, if we make one, implies our humiliation and our refusal to see. 
We imagine that it is the stink of excrement that makes us feel sick. But would it stink if we had not thought it was disgusting in the first place? We do not take long to forget that trouble we go to pass on to our children, the aversions that make us what we are, which make us human beings to begin with. Our children do not spontaneously have our reactions. They may not like a certain food, and they may refuse it. But we have to teach them by pantomime, or failing that by violence, that curious aberration called disgust, powerful enough to make us feel faint, a contagion passed down to us from the earliest men through countless generations of scolded children. Our mistake is to take these teachings lightly. For thousands of years we have been handing them down to our children, but they used to have a different form. The realm of disgust and nausea is broadly the result of these teachings. The prodigality of life and our fear of it. After reading this, we may feel a void opening within us. What I have been saying refers to this void and nothing else. But the void opens at a specific point. Death, for instance, may open it. The corpse into which death infuses absence. The putrefaction associated with this absence. I can link my revulsion at the decay. My imagination suggests it, not my memory. So profoundly is it a forbidden object for me. With the feelings that obscenity arouse in me. I can tell myself that repugnance and horror are the mainsprings of my desire, that such desire is only aroused as long as its object causes a chasm no less deep than death to yawn within me, and that this desire originates in its opposite, horror. From the outset, reflections like these go beyond all reasonableness. It takes an iron nerve to perceive the connection between the promise of life implicit in eroticism and the sensuous aspect of death. Mankind conspires to ignore the fact that death is also the youth of things. Blindfolded, we refuse to see that only death guarantees the fresh upsurging without which life would be blind. We refuse to see that life is the trap set for the balanced order, that life is nothing but instability and disequilibrium. Life is a swelling tumult, continuously on the verge of explosion. But since the incessant explosion constantly exhausts its resources, it can only proceed under one condition. That beings given life, whose explosive force is exhausted, shall make room for fresh beings coming into the cycle with renewed vigour. A more extravagant procedure cannot be imagined. In one way, life is possible. It could easily be maintained without this colossal waste, this squandering annihilation at which imagination boggles. Compared with that of the infusoria, the mammalian organism is a gulf that swallows vast quantities of energy. This energy is not entirely wasted if it allows other developments to take place. But we must consider the devilish cycle from start to finish. The growth of vegetable life implies the continuous piling up of dissociated substances, corrupted by death. Herbivorous creatures swallow vegetable matter by the heap before they themselves are eaten, victims of the carnivore's urge to devour. Finally, nothing is left but this fierce beast of prey or his remains, in their turn the prey of hyenas and worms. 
There is one way of considering this process in harmony with its nature. The more extravagant are the means of engendering life, the more costly is the production of new organisms, the more successful the operation is. The wish to produce at cut prices is niggardly and human. Humanity keeps to the narrow capitalist principle, that of the company director, that of the private individual who sells in order to rake in the accumulated credits in the long run, for raked in somehow they always are. On a comprehensive view, human life strives towards prodigality to the point of anguish, to the point where anguish becomes unbearable. The rest is mere moralizing chatter. How can this escape us if we look at it dispassionately? Everything proclaims it. A febrile unrest within us asks death to wreak its havoc at our expense. We go halfway to meet these manifold trials, these false starts, this squandering of living strength in the transition from aging beings to other younger ones. At bottom, we actually want the impossible situation it all leads to, the isolation, the threat of pain, the horror of annihilation, but for the sensation of nausea bound up with it, so horrible that often in silent panic we regard the whole thing as impossible. We should not be satisfied. But our judgments are formed under the influence of recurring disappointments and the obstinate expectation of a calm that goes hand in hand with that desire. Our capacity to make ourselves understood is in direct ratio with the blindness we cling to. For at the crest of the convulsion which gives us shape, the naive stubbornness that hopes that it will cease can only increase the torment. And this allows life, wholly committed to this gratuitous pattern, to add the luxury of a beloved torment to fatality. For if man is condemned to be a luxury in himself, what is one to say of the luxury that is anguish? Man's no to nature. When all is said and done, Human reactions are what speed up the process. Anguish speeds it up and makes it more keenly felt at the same time. In general, man's attitude is one of refusal. Man has leant over backwards in order not to be carried away by the process, but all he manages to do by this is hurry it along at an even dizzier speed. If we view the primary taboos as the refusal laid down by the individual to cooperate with nature, regarded as the squandering of living energy, and an orgy of annihilation, we can no longer differentiate between death and sexuality. Sexuality and death are simply the culminating points of the holiday. Nature celebrates with the inexhaustible multitude of living beings, both of them signifying the boundless wastage of nature's resources, as opposed to the urge to live on characteristic of every living creature. In the long, or short, run, Reproduction demands the death of the parents who produced, their <clears throat> who produced their young only to give fuller reign to the forces of annihilation, just as the death of a generation demands that a new generation be born. In the parallels perceived by the human mind between putrefaction and the various aspects of sexual activity, the feelings of revulsion which set us against both end by mingling. The taboos embodying a single dual-purpose reaction may have taken shape one at a time. One can even imagine a long time elapsing between the taboo connected with death and the one connected with reproduction. 
often the most perfect things take shape hesitatingly through successive modifications. But we perceive their unity nonetheless. We feel we are dealing with an indivisible complex, just as if man had once and for all realised how impossible it is for nature, as a given force, to exact from the things that she brings forth their participation in the destructive and implacable frenzy that animates her. Nature demands their surrender, or rather, she asks them to go crashing headlong to their own ruin. Humanity becomes possible at the instant when, seized by an insurmountable dizziness, man tried to answer, no. Man tried? In fact, men have never definitively said no to violence, to the excessive urges in question. In their weaker moments, they have resisted nature's current, but this is a momentary suspension and not a final standstill. We must now examine the transgressions that lie beyond the taboos.